podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing, My Path Takes Me Strange Places, to talk about patrons. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. When we cast My Path Takes Me Strange Places, we discuss the setting of of Invisible Sun. This time we're going to be talking about patrons and how they might interact with your Vizlay. So... Yeah, just in order to avoid any further confusion, we're talking about patrons, not Patreon, or patrons of a Patreon. We're talking about patrons of your Vizlay. Uh, so your Vizlay would have patronage, the patronage of this patron? Is that how that works? I believe that is how that works. Yeah. Um, this is something that shows up in the core books. It's in the gate. It's got like, uh, you know, a page and a half about dedicated to it. Um, It's on pages 40 through 42. uh, And there's probably a bunch of art. This showed up in the gate. It's on pages 40 through 42. It's got a little blurb in there about, you know, what patrons are. And uh, it has a couple of example patrons and how they function in invisible sun. And this is something that has, I'm sure shown up in other games. Uh, Scott, I'm guessing you have some examples of other games that have patrons in them yes um not a lot and not that necessarily function this way but the the patron and uh, uh the patron's relationship is, is fairly common in games that have a fantasy or quasi medieval feel mm-hmm. i mean the warlock class in dungeons and dragons is this uh but then you can also have you know patrons in a non-mythical sense um with you know, some sort of Lord and Vassal situation. I mean, that's something that has shown up before, I'm sure. It's it's a big part of Dungeon Crawl Classics. Oh, is it? Yeah, I, I don't think it's called, they're called patrons. I forgot. There's special language for it. But this notion that there's a kind of a basically a higher being that grants you special powers, but also creates obligations for you is mm-hmm. a huge part of both Dungeon Crawl Classics and Mutant Crawl Classics. In Mutant Crawl Classics, they're called like patron AIs or something. Hmm. And so you are uh, beholden to the influence of a disembodied AI in that game. But this is just, these are just examples of where this this sort of relationship is, is present in other games. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that was in the those games because I thought uh, the Crawl Classics games were just for like level zero characters that you run through a funnel and everybody dies because that's that's the only version i've played and i've um played it a few times now with uh, mark plord running a couple of adventures for us and uh james walls i got to hop into one mm-hmm. of his funnels earlier at uh, gen con this year that's the most common way to run the game at conventions is there it's... more game after that <laughs> there there is in fact a whole other game after that <clears throat> yeah so anyway dungeon crawl classics aside um in invisible sun 
uh, the there is this concept of a patron. It's an immortal being that forges a relationship uh, with. I don't know if it specifically states a Vizle, but I mean that's the context we're looking for here. So they forge this relationship with a Vizle, and that indicates um, you know how this allegiance is uh, you know developed in the game, uh, and in the fiction of the world, this patronage is formed in, and it follows this elaborate uh, ritual. It follows these pacts and forms that were established in the far distant past of this setting. And that's about all of the backstory you get for this. I mean, it seems like there could be a whole lot to dig into because a lot of Invisible Sun deals with what's happening right here and now. It doesn't really get into the whole history of the world. So I think it's interesting because that, that kind of stuck out to me as, you know, there is stuff that came before where your characters pick up, uh, but we don't really get into it. Like, yeah, there's the war that nobody talks about. And then there was stuff that happened before it. But, you know, there it never really felt like the distant past was a real big deal. But there was something going on back there that, you know, set up all these uh, rules and pacts to establish uh, these magical connections between immortal beings and regular people. Um, and this is functionally defined in the book as the patron has an ask of the character, and then they also provide aid to the character. So you have these two things that you know give you the functional benefits and requirements for each of the patrons that they develop in the book. Um, you can also find more examples of patrons in book M and that's on pages 17 through 23. And it also discusses what patrons are and how they function. I think it might just be the exact same text, uh, in both books. And then it has more patrons in book M. Yeah, I think that might be the case, but I did notice there were many more options in book M. Yes. A lot more examples. Um, okay. So here's, here's what a Vizlay will get out of this sort of relationship. Um, this is the aid. This is the boon that a Vizlay is going to get. And it could be something as simple as you get access to this very powerful spell that normally you wouldn't be able to get. Uh, or maybe you have some sort of favor that you can call in, um, at a future date. Um, and it might be sort of undefined. Um, there are, there's all sorts of stuff you could do with this. You could you could make it up however you want. Um, it also gives the Vizle the ability to get in touch with the patron in a manner that is similar to using the Beseech spell. I think it's a ritual, uh, but you don't actually need the spell to do it. So you have you basically have a pager that you can use to get in touch with this extremely powerful entity and ask them for help. Um, so those are the the big things that the Vizlay gets out of it. And all right. of the patrons have examples of what that aid is going to be. Uh, yeah, but you, you yeah, it listed as a uh, beseech as an invocation, which I think is a flavorful word, but doesn't have necessarily mechanical consequences like terms incantation, ritual or things like that. So I think it's pretty open as to uh, how that works yeah and i think it is a ritual in the way mm -hmm. is it the way i think the way is where they have a bunch of rituals or it might be yeah it's probably in the way um 
because I remember there was something that we had to do that used beseech. Um, but it's a ritual that you can learn in order to contact higher beings. Um, but in this case, if you have a patronage, you can just get in touch with this entity that you uh, owe allegiance to. Right. With, with no requirement for long-term uh, rituals or casting. So this would be yes. more or less instantaneous. Yep. As instantaneous as the story permits. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So if you are enjoying how this scene is playing out and you don't want to bring in an immortal, powerful entity, perhaps they were busy handling the, um, you know, re- the ask of another patron that they have. Um, so what does the patron get out of it? And this is the ask. So this is this is what the entity is asking of the Vizlay to do. This is what the Vizlay has to do to complete their end of the bargain. And you know, they might have to do some sort of ritual where they have to, you know, perform something perhaps once a month or once a year, and it has to be significant. Um, it could be a soul that they have to offer using something like the sacrificial rite. Uh, it could be, uh, this was an interesting one that I saw on one of the patrons. Uh, the requirement could be that the Visley has to have a specific character arc chosen from a list in progress at all times. So, you know, you're, you're pushing the character into some sort of, uh, you know, character development, which is really interesting. Um, the other thing is, is this could be, uh, some sort of task that you want that you, the GM want the Vizlay to do. Um, but the one thing that I've been kind of thinking about here is what does an immortal powerful being need a Vizlay to do that it cannot. Um, but then I think that gets into the whole idea of, you know, why do you need to have these characters who are not as powerful working for something that is potentially of limitless power? Uh, and then it, that gets into the whole, you know, rituals and pacts that were established in the far distant past. Like magic is all about structure and rules and, Maybe this is kind of how that works. Yeah, there's an example. I don't think this is one of the examples we'll talk about in detail later, where the ask is to build a garden with rare plants in it. It is not necessarily an ask that is uh, disruptive. It could be something that doesn't seem to be proportionate to the power that is being granted because these patrons are operating on a level of power that is so far removed from from your day-to-day vislay that it might not be clear why the ask is related to the uh, the aid. But it could be part of just some sort of generational game that the patrons are playing or some sort of generational project. Uh, and this adds to the mystery of patrons that they are they seem very worried or very focused on things that don't seem to correspond to what we would think from a rational uh, investment perspective uh, from our Vizlay perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't have to necessarily have this sense of proportion, uh, but instead breaking the proportion can just increase the mystery. I guess this uh, reminds me of another thing that has come up in other things that I've read uh, movies I watched. I'm not sure. I think, I think American gods kind of gets into this. Uh, And there's an episode of the Simpsons that basically, um, you know, these gods and these powerful entities, they only exist because of the belief of, you know, people, you know, 
once people stop believing in these gods, in these entities, then they lose their power. So perhaps building a garden of strange and rare plants doesn't seem like a very um, important thing or a very powerful thing, but that garden is continuing to spread and propagate the message that, oh, the, you know, the powerful entity that tasked this visley with creating this garden, you know, they are doing this, they're spreading their influence and people hear about them and they learn about them. And perhaps other people are inspired by this garden to create their own gardens, which continues to grow that uh, God's power in some way. Right. And it's not necessarily for the, the players to, or the Vizlay <laughs> to understand what that, what it is. Um, all right. So we have a couple of examples. I didn't grab too many cause they're like, they're pretty chunky. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff going on in them. They have a, I would, I would say like each patron gets about a half a page of text in, in these books. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with them. Like you get this nice descriptive intro to, you know, what this person or what this entity is. And then it tells you what they want and what they're going to provide. So, uh, I pulled both of these from, uh, book M. So, <laughs> uh, Jodocus of Kaume. How's that? Sounds good to me. I could uh, not okay. propose anything better. So this is an entity that was dead, is no longer dead, kind of transcended death itself, it seems like. Um, and they are a fabled gardener. Um, <clears throat> and they're uh, really good at like they're they're legendary they're a legendary conversationalist I think is the uh, one sentence summary of what this and what this patron would be uh, and what they provide a visley is this spell called what endings have wrought it's like a level six spell or something and it allows the visley to tell entertaining tales to sing to create stories to basically entertain a crowd that will love what they're doing. And uh, I mean, it's, that's interesting. I, I personally would like that quite a bit in for my role-playing style. Um, and the ask that this patron has is uh, the Visley has to go out and seek out anecdotes and tales and collect all of these stories and then visit the garden of unending endings twice a year and present all of this to uh, Jodocus to have them, you know, review all the stories and take the stories that they like. Um, so it's, this is sort of a, I, I see this as something that would play out in development mode. I mean, maybe you would have one, one scene in the game where they make this visit to the garden and do this presentation. But this seems like something that would just sort of happen behind the scenes uh, as something that just goes on every once in a while. Though I could say it depends on your group as always. Uh, I, I definitely see the mm -hmm. niche of the type of player and the type of group where this will work well. I think this actually, this is a wonderful example because it shows how some of these patrons, they're going to work really well for some types of players and some types of groups and others they won't, but when they won't, you just ignore them and you don't use them. Uh, this not only gives you that spell and sort of an interesting relationship you can play with, but I actually think that the, the, the ask of going to the garden of unending 
endings to present their collection could itself be a really interesting story for the entire party. There's a trope in a lot of fantasy fiction uh, about a group of of, uh, of players, of uh, a kind of a, a roving cast of actors. And you could kind of play into that trope and tell that type of story by having your entire party of Visley assist you in going to the Garden of Unending Endings and acting out the tales that you've collected as compensation for the assistance of Jodicus. Oh, you're talking about turning them into like a traveling minstrel group? Maybe for just for one session while you, yeah. you know, that that's the expectation for you to present your collection. You present it as an anthology play and some groups would absolutely love that sort of story opportunity. Others would find it tedious. So you have to just know your group and this is, this would be great for some groups and just ignorable for others. For others, you just move it through development mode. Mm -hmm. It's just that one player interested. And so there's a way out of having to drag everyone along with you. But it's also an opportunity if everyone wants to do this, uh, to tell this particular type of story within Invisible Sun. I could also see this playing really well uh, for a group that is broadcasting their their game. Like this would work pretty well for like a live play or a podcast or something. Yes. Uh, next one that I picked out was Mon Blade of the Fail. Oof, flail. Boy, messed up the easy one. Um, so Mon Blade of the Fail is... It's in your head now. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's it's perfect. <laughs> Mon Blade of the Flail is a near-mindless demonic entity. Um, <laughs> so this thing... <laughs> oh, my formatting is messing me up too. Um, so this thing is, uh, it's a, it's a near mindless demonic entity. Like this is a great one for somebody who wants to just get a weapon and smash things and destroy things and kill things. Because what you get is Monblaze murderous flail. It's a level seven object of power and it does a whole bunch of extra damage. And it, and here's the nice thing about it. It won't deplete as long as you're killing or destroying something every day. The only downside, and if you ask me, this isn't much of a downside if you're <laughs> seeking this sort of thing out. The ask is that you must kill a level three intelligent being or something that is significantly powerful uh, every week. So basically, you need to go out there and you need to uh, crush and kill and destroy and use this flail to destroy stuff and wreak havoc. So in some ways, it's Stormbringer uh, in terms of its hunger. Just to remind people of the mechanics of this, uh, a level seven object of power means when you swing Monblaze Murderous Flail, you're adding seven to your venture. Yeah. This, this can power lots insane. Of yes. So with a moderately powerful character who presumably has been investing in... Uh, uh, the sorts of skills one would use in combat. This person's probably throwing down a venture of 12 to 13 regularly. Uh, and they also get an enhancement die when they use this thing. Because yes, absolutely. Uh, also this thing inflicts seven points of damage, which, you know, breaks out a little bit from the standard. What is it? Two, four, six. Yes. So, so yeah, you get a, a really powerful weapon. Yeah, it's a little heavier than a heavy weapon. Yeah, 
Um, I think this might also be a good guide for when a maker is making weapons. It's a good guide for like, all right, how powerful should this weapon be when they are creating it, when they're crafting it? And I think this falls pretty close to in line with what we've been doing. Right. This this gives you a, a very a good upper end model. Mm-hmm. That if you've got level seven, we're talking about something that is going to be Stormbringer. It's going to be something of this sort of, you know, world shattering uh, artifact. It's not just, oh, it's just a plus seven sword. Like there's no just a plus seven sword. There is no just a plus seven flail. There is a level seven object of power is a very powerful object. Yeah. And once you've got a maker who is, you know, halfway competent, building this sort of thing gets to be pretty easy. Though I would put some extreme uh, requirements in terms of materials because of how this will change the game. Yeah, it changes the game a little bit. I don't know. I've got a weaver in our group, and I think that, you know, they they change the game quite a bit. Uh, Also fair. Everyone (laughs) changes the game in their own way. It's not that there is a power imbalance. It's that everyone's broken. Everybody gets broken. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So why would you want to use these patrons in your game? Because there's a whole bunch of other patrons. And honestly, I ran into a case where I inadvertently created a patron for one of my characters. It just sort of came up as we were playing the game. And I looked back into it and said, I think I need to create a like a patronage sort of agreement between you and this entity that you ask for help from. And then I need to figure out what this thing wants from you. Um, so the reasons why I would think you would want to use patrons is, um, well, in this case, I had a player who was interested in setting up some sort of pact with a powerful entity. Um, he didn't really know it when we started the conversation, and I didn't know it either. But by the end of the conversation, that's what was happening. He was looking to get some sort of big favor from this powerful entity uh and you know once they agreed to the terms then we were off to the races and we had a patron in our group um another thing that i liked about you know these patrons as i was reading through them is there are a lot of asks that they will give you as a gm that will push the visley to do something you you're going to push your group you're going to push your characters into a specific direction That could be really interesting. Like if you have a group who likes, you know, goofing around and telling stories and entertaining each other, then yeah, you might want to have them go and visit the Garden of Unending Endings. And the best way to do it is to just set up a patronage with that entity. Another thing I was thinking about as I was building out the patron relationship that's in my game is it provides a way to sort of peel back the mystery of the setting. Because we're talking about this powerful, immortal being who's been around for a very long time, and they're a perfect conduit to just sort of feed information to your characters that they might not know to ask about. And that's something that I don't like about having secrets and mysteries in games. Like you as the GM, you know everything that's going on, but the players don't. And if you don't have that context, you don't know how to dig into, you know, the bigger mysteries that are being presented to you because you don't know the questions to ask. But if you have a patron here, they can sort of, you know, nudge the Vizley along in a way that feels natural without you being, 
the GM and just saying like, oh, here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. Yeah. And it's important to remember that if you don't want to go for a patron relationship, you can just fall back on using pacts. Uh, and pacts are more general. They usually are relationships between a well, t- two groups, say Goetics and some group of entities like a group of, of angels or something like that. Uh, they are not necessarily as mechanically inclined as patronage relationships, uh, but they are an option for a more informal version of a of reciprocity between two parties. Uh, so this is just a more elaborate version that probably allows for a more demanding relationship and a bigger uh, aid than you would get through a pact. Uh, but it's really an extreme version of pacts, which are just sort of informally in the game to begin with. So you can always fall back on those if you don't want a, a patron relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, any closing thoughts before we wrap it up here? This is a part of the game I had forgotten about. Me Several too. times. <laughs> I'd read it and went, ooh, that's neat. Next. Yep. And we have not used any in our games, um, but this review just makes me want to use it even more. Uh, maybe even reimagining some of our pacts as patronage uh, or developing what we have as pacts into a patronage relationship. It wouldn't necessarily negate the old pact, but it's just a, a further development of that relationship uh, in a way that I think could be really interesting. Uh, now I'll have to look at the examples and see if any of them fit or can be adapted to my game. Uh, Cause it would also be totally fair to look at one of these, you know, Mon- you know, Monblay the flail and say, Oh, I don't really want to flail and I don't want Monblay, but man, there's this, a dream entity that is destructive and that we're pursuing uh, at this relationship with. And so I'll just reskin the whole thing as a, uh, a, a nightmare creature with a uh, club or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you could change the details very easily on these patrons to fit them into your story. Um, and uh, it's just a, a, there's a lot of options here that I had forgot about and look forward to revisiting uh, and possibly integrating into my game. Awesome. I'm glad I could inspire some thoughts for you. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, It really helps us out. Uh, We also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, Or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and help people find us.